a poem arising out of practice. In the calm, in the silence, at the still point, we are, we cease to be, breathing into the heart, the secret, the mystery unfolds with gentle, unabated attention, the ceaseless flow, the ever-changing nature, an emergence into beginningless, endless, joyous love. The Chinese written character for love was developed from two ancient pictographic symbols, one on top of the other or one below the other, depending how you see it. The pictograph on top is a very simple one representing a person breathing or a symbol of breath or a symbol of breath happening. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So Chinese pictographic writing in, the, in that pictographic writing, the symbol or the letter, the word, the symbol, written word for love, is derived from breath through the heart or breathing into the heart. So as we practice metta, as we practice loving-kindness, we're practicing the opening, the expansion of the heart, like the air that moves through us as we breathe, as breath happens. And we can develop a love that's truly great, a love that's really, really boundless that's not limited, that's not a finite thing, but infinite, spacious, just like the air that we breathe, the air that passes through us. In a moment of experiencing this, it's a completely refreshing experience. In that moment, we're purified washed clean of all ill will towards all beings, including ourselves. One of the Buddhist symbols for loving kindness and compassion is one moon shining in the sky while its image is reflected in a hundred bowls of water. The moon doesn't demand if you open to me, I'll shine on you. The moon just simply shines. In Tibetan and Zen Buddhism, the Buddha of unconditional caring and compassion, Avalokiteshvara, he's often depicted, or he, she, is often depicted as having a thousand arms outstretched and a thousand eyes Each palm of the outstretched arm is painted with an eye. 
a thousand eyes to see all the suffering in the world and a thousand arms reaching out to help. Some years ago I was at a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh, who probably most of you have heard of, a very wonderful Vietnamese Buddhist monk, teacher, poet. There were about 400 adults at the retreat. And there were two other retreats going on at the same time. About 30 children who were having their own retreat and about 30 uh, Vietnam veterans who were partly having their own retreat and partly involved in the whole retreat. Each morning before the or adult retreat began, we were all gathered in the tent together and the children would come in and do a kind of show and tell something about what they had been practicing and learning the day before. So one morning they came in and they stood in front of us and they just stood there. They didn't do anything, they didn't say anything until all at one time they all held up their arms, palms facing us, and in each palm was an eye painted. That was their teaching, their show and tell. Then one little boy went up on the platform and painted an eye in the palm of Thich Nhat Hanh's hand. And then they left. It was a very touching, very inspiring, very powerful teaching that morning. Metta, unconditional love. Love without any conditions needing to be met. The heart open, shining like the sun, reflecting like the moon. Some years ago, a friend of mine and I were sitting in the kitchen of a retreat center in Ocate, New Mexico. There were a small community of people living there, a family and some others. And they were having a very difficult time. We were visiting that morning, all of the people, friends of ours. They were having a meeting that afternoon to try to work out the difficulties, clear things up. And there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of tension preceding the meeting in the community. My friend and I were sitting at the kitchen table talking about it a little bit. And then he wrote something down on a piece of paper. And he left it on the kitchen table to be read. And this is what it said. What is love? Love is not an emotion. Neither can it be a feeling. Love is certainly not an it. Nor can it be bought or sold. Like water a universal solvent, like honey, sticks on everything, like light, dispels darkness, like wind, where from, where to, like sand, ungraspable. Yet without it there is death, without it there is sickness, without it there is struggle, without it there is greed, Without it, there is warring. So where is love? Everywhere, always, 
in front, above, behind, below. Then here is peace. Here is harmony. Here is the golden mean. Here is the crux of the wheel. Here is the meaning of life. To love, to let go. Let go is the backside of love. Let's do it. He just left it on the table for the community to read. As I mentioned last night, the Pali word metta translates as friendship, loving-kindness. So metta is really about being a friend, a true friend to oneself, and a friend to all that lives. Even this little insect crawling up on my cushion at the moment. And we know that when we experience a, a true friendship, a very close friendship with another person, our partner or another good friend, we experience a respect, we experience an honoring coming to us from our friend. We experience a tremendous amount of goodwill coming to us from our friend. In a close friendship, there's usually not a dwelling in aversion, even though it does arise. Difficulties arise, but it comes and it goes. And when it arises in a true friendship, in a close friendship, it's usually not very sticky. And it's usually quickly counterbalanced, quite quickly counterbalanced by this goodwill. Patience and kindness are easily acceptable in close friendship when there are difficulties, even when things are unpleasant. So in being a close friend to ourselves, all these same qualities are relevant. Extending kindness, extending patience towards all of the arising and passing conditions of our own mind, our own body, our own heart, even towards what we think of as our faults or our failings, towards what we might label bad or what seems unacceptable because of our conditioning, our bad thoughts, our bad moods. Patience is a key in this practice. Patience is both the seed and the fruit of practice. Patience is a very powerful key in the practice of the Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity the divine abidings. The Buddha spoke a lot about patience in many different ways. One of the things he said was, there's no higher rule than patience, no nirvana, no freedom higher than forbearance, no greater thing exists than patience. The Buddha spoke about embarking upon the development of loving-kindness for the purpose of secluding, for the purpose of cloistering, for the purpose of protecting the mind and heart from anger, from fear, 
from all the myriad manifestations, both overt and subtle, of those states of mind. Allowing us to see, in practicing the development of a loving heart, allowing us to see in depth the inner and outer danger in dwelling in these states of mind. He spoke about the practice of metta as a very powerful way of introducing our heart-mind to patience and cultivating our heart towards a patient, loving heart and really coming to know this in a very deep way, in a very experiential way, as an advantage, as a great benefit in one's life. In the Asian languages, in many of the Asian languages, the word heart-mind is interchangeable. So when I speak, I keep doing that, back and forth, heart-mind. It's a, it's a helpful way to not separate. When the Buddha spoke about forbearance in the context of patience, as the highest freedom, the highest nirvana. It's not meant as a quality of grim endurance or putting up with it or sort of toughing it out. That's not what it means at all. It's really about the quality of softness, the quality of acceptance. (coughs) Forbearance in that sense, softness and acceptance. The quality of abiding in one's life in a way that allows us to approach and to be with, to be fully (coughs) present with each moment, with a true openness and respect, an honoring of the moment, no matter what we're feeling in our mind, no matter what we're experiencing in our heart, in our body, no matter what's coming to us from the world around us, to forbear in that sense, that's (coughs) what it means. With the cultivation of the mind of patience, the mind and heart of kindness, there's a weakening, a very considerable weakening of the difficult and often harmful states of mind, anger, jealousy, fear, rage, irritation, all of the states of aversion. Those states can't exist in a moment of (coughs) unconditional love. They don't exist at the same time. With the cultivation of a heart of loving-kindness, patience, friendship, of unconditional caring, there's also a considerable weakening of our attachment and our identification with these aversive states of mind. Out of habit, often unconsciously, We react to a situation, to a person, with fear, with anger. It's our habit. It's something we've learned. It's sometimes what I call our karmic predicament, this reacting out of habit. And in a certain sense, it's how we think of ourselves. It's what we do. I do anger. I do fear. 
I'm a fearful person, I'm an angry person. <coughs> it's our identity. And it's actually very narrow. It's a very binding way to live. It keeps us from our boundless, heartful potential. We become very attached, very identified with just a very tiny piece of life. So often in our lives we want to (coughs) escape from what we're experiencing in the moment. And we often do this actually through fear and through anger. If we become angry, we don't actually have to be with. If we're fearful, we can get away from. It's a natural thing. But it also keeps us from being with our life fully. So in developing the heart of loving-kindness, learning how to be our own best friend, it helps us to start right where we are, just where we are in any moment. And sometimes it might be with our feelings of anger, our feelings of greed, our fears, our doubts, our jealousies, our delusions. All of these things that move through our mind, our heart, our body, and much of which we're attached to and identified with. We often have very strong feelings of dislike for ourselves in these places, in these states, even as we're identified with them. With the heart of metta, loving-kindness, we're less and less inclined to wallow or feel self-pity or judge ourselves. And we don't obsessively try to suss out our weaknesses and our faults or what we think of as our so-called imperfections. Often our strong identification, our often strong identification with these emotional states of mind begins to fade in the light of a loving heart. And we can, with metta and compassion, and the Pali word for compassion is karuna, we can, with metta and karuna, come to see and to know these aspects of ourself with a kindness, with a spaciousness, with a patient awareness. And so, as we are sometimes much more easily with a friend, we can learn to also be with ourselves and see all the characteristics, all the qualities in ourself, all the beings in ourself, coming and going and changing. And we can see this with a kindness and learn a, a peaceful, but not a passive coexistence with as fear, as jealousy, sadness, doubt, wanting, aversion, arise and pass, arise and pass. As our practice of metta deepens, we stop, or at least we less and less, create another layer of difficulty or suffering on top of what is taking place by being averse to states of mind, states of heart. Expectations of being a perfect man or a perfect woman are quite unrealistic. No matter what we've been told by our parents, by society, by the media, by ourselves, 
all telling us to be this perfect whatever it is, whatever perfect is, telling us sometimes we have to be someone else or we have to be different, we have to smell different or look different, act different, or do or be a particular way or not do or be a particular way, to be okay in the eyes of our parents, society, ourselves. If we continue to take on these messages, as we all know, it creates and re-stimulates feelings of not being good enough, not being okay, not being lovable, not being able to love, not being likable or worthy. And all of these feelings, all of these aspects of our human condition are really aspects of the deepest human suffering, especially in our culture, in our very competitive, comparative culture. I was looking through a woman's magazine one day, and I found this ad, and I quote it. Wishing you look different is a major waste of time. Don't freak out over over every flaw. Fix it and get on with it. Mixed messages, confusion. And then it goes on to say, learn to see the positive. It's an ad for a makeup called Plain Jane. (laughs) And when I saw it, in the moment, it seemed to be the epitome of the confusing messages that our culture gives us all the time in so many different ways. We're just inundated with these kinds of confusing messages. In taking on these messages, in living in and out of them, we're actually perpetuating the illusion. And it is an illusion. We develop and strengthen the delusion, the illusion, delusion, illusion, and we wall off. We live in denial. Our inner mental map, so to say, just isn't really inclusive of our real experience at least not fully. It's partial. It's with a false view of how it is. And it keeps our heart partially closed. It's very narrow. It's very binding. And so we begin our metta practice with ourself, our moods, our difficult feelings, our beautiful feelings, not demanding that they not be there. Emotions and feelings just naturally arise and naturally go away. Struggling and trying to get rid of them, fighting with them, actually perpetuates them. We get stuck in them when we try to push them away. Sort of like Velcro practice. (laughs) With a friend, we don't actually demand that they stop feeling what they're feeling, especially if they're being honest with us in their sharing of their experience. We treat them kindly. We listen. We treat them with care. Can we also do this with ourselves? Wisdom arises when we begin to accept all the different beings within ourself and outside of ourself, rather than trying to manipulate things. 
unconditional love is a deep understanding, a deep wisdom. Wisdom, understanding, is love. I'd like to read a, just a little piece from uh, <clears throat> a book called The Education of Little Tree. And it's written in a vernacular which I might have trouble reading. <laughs> I might read it in a, my own English. Grandma said everybody has two minds. One of the minds has to do with the necessaries for body living. You had to use it to figure out how to get shelter and eating and such like for the body. She said you had to use it to mate and to have young uns and such. She said we had to have that mind so we could carry on. But she said we had another mind that had nothing at all to do with such. She said it was the spirit mind. Grandma said if you use the body living mind to think greedy or mean, if you was always cutting at folks with it and figuring how to material profit off in them, then you would shrink up your spirit mind to the size no bigger than a hickory nut. Grandma said that when your body died, the body living mind died with it. And if that's the way you thought all your life, there you was, stuck with a hickory nut spirit. As the spirit mind was all that lived on, that lived when everything else died. Then Grandma said, when you was born back, as you was bound to be, then there you was, born with a hickory nut spirit mind that had practical no understanding at anything. Then it might shrink up to the size of a pea and could disappear if the body-living mind took over total. In such a case, you lost your spirit completely. That's how you become dead people. Grandma said you could easy spot dead people. She said dead people, when they looked at a woman, saw nothing but dirty. And when they looked at other people, they saw nothing but bad. And when they looked at a tree, they saw nothing but lumber and profit, never beauty. Grandma said they was dead people walking around. Grandma said that the spirit mind was like any other muscle. If you used it, it got bigger and stronger. She said the only way it could get that way was by using it to understand. But you couldn't open the door till it until you quit being greedy and such with the body mind. Then you understand, then understanding commenced to take up. And the more you tried to understand, the bigger it got. Natural, she said, understanding and love was the same thing. Except folks went at it backwards too many times, trying to pretend they loved things they didn't understand when they didn't understand them, which can't be done. I see right now I was going to commence trying to understand practical everybody, for I sure didn't want to come up with a hickory nut spirit. So here we are, trying not to come up with a hickory nut spirit. <laughs> The mirror of relationship, be it our family, our friends, work relationships, community relationships, relationships in retreat, even in the silence, we're very much in relationship here and we come to know each other in very deep ways. Relationship is the perfect mirror for practice with all its joys, all its irritations, annoyances, frustrations, dislikes, likes all that are so apparent in living with others. Perfect situations. 
daily life, retreat life, on the cushion and off the cushion, for practicing loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity. My children possibly have been and still are the greatest teachers, pointing me towards the possibility of learning to be a more sensitive, open person. Learning to allow each person to be as they are and work out difficulties, rather than trying to force change by expecting or pushing another person to be how I would like them to be or how I think they should be. We can't really know how or what our children will be as they grow and mature. There's no way we can know this. We can't control it. And we couldn't have imagined in our wildest imaginings how our own life has unfolded and continues to unfold. We couldn't have imagined. So the practice of relationship with all its likes, dislikes, joys, irritations, annoyances, delights, frustrations, satisfactions, the perfect ground for metta practice. There's a wonderful story um, about Gurdjieff, uh, a no longer alive philosopher teacher who for many years lived in France uh, with the community. He was the teacher of the community, spiritual community, people who studied and practiced with him. And in that community there was a man, an old man who lived there, and he was a very irascible fellow, very messy, argumentative. He didn't cooperate. He wouldn't help. He didn't get along with anybody. Nobody got along with him. No one liked him. And he probably didn't like very many people either. And he tried for a long time to stay in the community. But it was very difficult for him, very painful for him, actually, as well as it was for other people. And so at some point he left and he went to Paris. But Gurji followed him and tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said he wouldn't do it. He was just too hard, too hard to be there. So Gurji finally offered him a monthly stipend to come back to the community, which he couldn't refuse because he was a very poor man. And so he returned. And when, when the man returned, everyone in the community was aghast. And they were even more aghast when they found out that Gurdjieff had paid him to come back. They themselves paid to be there. So, and they complained a lot and carried on about this man being there. So Gurdjieff called a meeting and he listened to everyone's complaints and then he laughed. And he said, this man is yeast for the bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger irritability, irritability, patience, and compassion. 
That's why I pay him and you pay me. Practicing loving-kindness for ourselves and for others is characterized by wishing well. Wishing well for ourselves, wishing well for others, in a very, as clear and unhampered way as is possible. That feeling of annoyance, that feeling of irritation, begins to weaken, begins to subside as we begin to feel the lovableness and the loving quality of heart within ourselves and within others. A caring without specific conditions needing to be met. This is the essence of metta, of loving kindness. In the traditional teachings, the traditional Buddhist teachings, as I read last night, metta is compared to a mother's love for her only child. In the words of the Buddha again, even as a mother protects with her life her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. And from another teacher, a Father's Day service this year at St. Edward's Catholic Church in West Baltimore was no greeting card homage to Dear Dad. St. Edward's, like many African-American congregations, calls the holiday Men's Day and uses it as an occasion to focus on the imperilment embedded in the daily lives of young men in the black community and to rally its men to the challenge. The men made their entrance in an exhilarating ceremony called the Procession of Warriors. Kiwisi Mafume spoke. You're not a man because you killed somebody, he said to a chorus of amens. You are a man when you know how to heal somebody. We must say, even from experience, brother, you're not a man if you can make a baby. You're a man when you learn how to raise a baby. That's when you become a man. The traditional Buddhist texts often use family relationship to describe the development of the qualities of heart. In one of his teachings, uh, the Buddha described the open-hearted essence of metta, actually the open-hearted essence of all the Brahma-viharas, the divine abidings, through a mother's relationship to her four sons. I was delighted to read this because I have three sons. (laughs) And each son because of his particular temperament and relationship to life, is the recipient of one of the energies of the divine abidings. The mother's attitude and relationship with each son is characterized by either loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, or equanimity. And although I only had three sons, they were great teachers for me, and they really didn't miss teaching me any of the divine abidings over and over and over and over again, just because of their beingness, just because of their being alive. It's been uh, about 32 years of very powerful teaching from them. 
And so we learn from our experience. In pregnancy, for instance, and not always for everybody, but very often there's an unconditional care taken of one's body in regard to what's growing inside and not even knowing who or what is in there. A taking care of oneself for the other, not doing certain things, not eating certain things, doing certain things, eating certain things. To give this unknown entity the best possible chance. And fathers also being very much a part of this unconditional caring attitude. Besides the general care, one of the things I did with my first pregnancy, which was uh, delivered twins, um, I did a lot of listening to classical music because I read that babies in the womb can hear. So I thought I'd give them the best possible chance for good music. I listened to a lot of classical music. And neither of them like classical music, not even a little bit. They've never liked classical music. <laughs> I was quite naive in, uh, in those days, but I tried my best. And in fact, when they were uh, adolescents, teenagers, their taste was basically acid rock, hard rock, acid rock, which was not my favorite kind of music. And it was very good practice for me. One of the phrases in the equanimity practice is that all beings are heirs to their own karma, no matter what I wish for them, or I am heir to my own karma no matter what I wish for myself. This applied to both them and to me. I wish them to love classical music. It just wasn't for them to love classical music. I wished it for me, too, but I didn't get it. It wasn't my karma. And to be equanimous, to be okay with what that experience was, what their taste was, there really wasn't too much of the possibility of having appreciative joy in the music. (laughs) But there was occasionally an arising of appreciative joy in their enjoyment. It wasn't easy, but it occasionally arose. It was good practice. The purity of appreciative joy, taking delight in someone else's success, taking delight in someone else's happiness, is said to be the most difficult of the divine abidings to cultivate. So often it's tainted with envy, with jealousy. One of the ways that has been accessible for me, that was accessible for me when my children were babies, and now that I have three grandchildren, I'm experiencing it all over again, is that amazing, pure joy that's so easily accessible, that so easily arises 
when a baby does something for the first time and is so delighted with itself in its rolling over, in its sitting up. Ah, the smiling, the laughing, that purity that that action comes out of and the pure delight in it and the pure delight that is reflected back. The baby doesn't roll over for me, doesn't stand up or take a step for me, although sometimes we think it's for me. (laughs) It's a little bit muddy sometimes. But uh, it actually is quite easy to be clear in that situation and a pure appreciative joy in this delight in another person's success and another person's happiness. Another teaching, uh, very early on in the life of one of my sons when he was two months old, I was holding him and looking down at him and a huge flood of Uh, compassion, understanding came. He was just lying there peacefully sweet. He wasn't crying. Um, But I was looking at him and seeing the sweetness, knowing that there would be sweetness in his life, but this huge flood of knowing how difficult that life would be, that life was difficult, and that this innocent, pure little being was going to experience an enormous amount of pain in his life. It was inevitable. And somehow that flood came over me, almost to the point of unbearability. It was very powerful and I've never forgotten it. The Buddha described compassion as a trembling or quivering of the heart in response to pain in response to suffering, ours or another's. Compassion is a very open, tender state, and at the same time very strong. With compassion we can be present with whatever is happening, with true compassion. We can see clearly the helplessness in those who are overwhelmed, or at least dealing with a tremendous amount of difficulty and suffering. We can accept it, and we're able to offer help without any kind of aversion. Compassion isn't a feeling sorry for. It's not pitying ourselves or pitying another when there's difficulty and suffering being experienced. Pity touches pain. Pity touches suffering with fear, actually, instead of mercy. And it's sometimes confused with compassion. When we pity, we want it to be different. Sometimes pity is also connected with a very subtle sense of, I'm glad it's not me. I'm glad it's not me that's suffering so much. It's a subtle kind of arrogance that's a cover-up for our inability that's based in fear of being with the suffering that we're encountering. When we feel pity 
in ourself or when we feel pitiful in ourself or for ourself, we're not really experiencing a kindness, a caring for ourself or a compassion for ourself, but a kind of sticky feeling sorry for ourselves. We all know that feeling, that pitiful, sticky place. An inability to really act in that place and taking care of ourselves. It's a very stuck state. In compassion, there's a strength and a trust in our ability to bear witness and to face whatever it is without wanting to make it disappear or pretend that something else is happening. Aversion to pain and suffering, uh, ours or another's, says, I, I can't stand this feeling, I can't stand to be near it. We aren't able to see someone else suffer. There's a diary written by a woman named Etty Illisum, Hillisum, who kept this diary while she was, at least part of it was kept while she was um, a prisoner in the Auschwitz concentration camp, which I had the honor to visit this summer. And a piece of her diary was read. This was a five-day retreat that I attended at Auschwitz. I wasn't there for the whole time, but a piece of her diary was read each evening. And this is one sentence from her diary, the part of which was written while she was in Auschwitz. When I suffer for the vulnerability, is it not for my own vulnerability that I really suffer? She was so open. After she was killed, people who survived said that she had been a light all through her time in Auschwitz, a light for everyone. And this is from Desmond Tutu from South Africa. Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Botho. It means the essence of being human. You know it when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, hospitality, putting yourself out on the behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. In the development of the human heart, our own human heart, we're capable of so much, way more than we imagine, beyond anything we can imagine. We've all been helpless, totally helpless, totally vulnerable, innocent. But we forget, or we don't know what we feel. We've learned to cover over. We've learned to protect ourselves. And sometimes it's been necessary to learn to protect ourselves and it's often learned in order to survive or to cope with how it was in the past. Maybe when we were very young 
and it was necessary at some point. But we learn our lessons very well, sometimes too well, so to say. It becomes our learned persona in the world, even when it's not necessary anymore. But our habits are so strong. And it's not so easy or so comfortable to relearn or to let go of these habits. To be another way or to simply just be open, to open and see and be with life in a more spontaneous way, just as it is in any moment. It's not so easy. Spiritual practice isn't always comfortable. Stuff comes up, as probably most of you know by now, in practice. The Buddhist practice isn't about security and how we usually think of it, or how we want security. Security in the familiar, security of the known. Even if the familiar and the known isn't particularly pleasant or doesn't serve us anymore. This is from a Cherokee Feast of Days called Autumn. Can there be anything more beautiful than the seasons of a tree? A tree stands in beauty from year to year and keeps its grace and dignity. We learn when we watch a tree. It constantly prunes itself, continually sheds any excess. Practice is about taking care of ourselves, truly taking care of ourselves in the deepest way. We actually are still totally vulnerable beings that we need to take care of. Sometimes I think of practice and the fruits of practice as a process of maturation that we mature into a wise baby, very open, sensitive, vulnerable, in a healthy way, in a very healthy way, very present with understanding, with wisdom, which is a great strength, like a wise baby. Practice in some ways is both the end of innocence and the beginning of it. Truly being mature. Our practice is a training of the heart, a training of the mind. And we call it practice because we have to practice it. We need to train our heart and mind. So as we as through our practice, both our formal practice and our life practice, our daily life practice, we open our hearts again and again to this vulnerability, to this sensitivity, to this love and care and compassion. And if we touch it, even for just a moment, if we truly touch it, if we just for a moment touch unconditional love, deep compassion, we have a moment of freedom.
My mother used to tell me when I was a child that if you don't love yourself, you can't love another person. And I didn't understand what she was talking about when I was young. And I'm beginning, as I begin to mature, I'm beginning to understand more what she meant by that. As we begin to develop a loving kindness, a friendship to ourselves, then we can actually open in a true way, open our hearts to others. Just as I want to be happy, just as I want to be peaceful, just as I want to have physical well-being, just as I want to be free from suffering, just as I have a strong will to live, just as I want to live with a deep ease and be free, so do all other beings. This is from the Buddha. I visited all quarters with my mind, nor found I any dearer than myself. Self is likewise dear to every other. Who loves herself or himself will never harm another. I had a wise mother. I still have a wise mother. And this is from Nisargadatta Maharaj from a book called I Am That. By all means be selfish the right way. Wish yourself well. Labor at what is good for you. Destroy all that stands between you and happiness. Be all. Love all. Be happy. Make happy. No happiness is greater. Sometimes because of our early childhood experiences, we need to learn or we need to relearn or we need to teach ourselves our worthiness, our lovability, our beauty. The real basis for spiritual work is actually deep self-acceptance. It's both the seed and the fruit of practice. This is an oft-read poem by Buddhist teachers by Galway Canal that says this in a very beautiful way. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the milken blue dreaminess, spurting and shuddering from the 14 teats into the 14 mouths sucking and blowing beneath them, the long, perfect loveliness of sow. For everything flowers of self-blessing, 
from within. Though sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. Opening, acknowledging, accepting all aspects of ourself, our shared humanness. As this begins to happen, understanding deepens and we begin to move out of our feelings of separateness. It's the deepest human yearning to overcome this feeling of separateness, to leave this prison of aloneness, of being separate, which actually being separate from ourselves actually means being separate from everything, being separate from all beings. And it's the most painful thing. Some years ago during a metta retreat at the meditation center that I lived at, I actually wasn't practicing metta, but uh, everybody else was. (laughs) I was in my room practicing vipassana. I had a memory, what I call an experiential memory. Sometimes these things happen in practice. They don't come in through thought. They're experiential memories. I remembered my birth, which might sound a bit strange, but people remember things like that sometimes in practice. It's not so uncommon. And in this experiential memory, upon entering the world, leaving the extremely comfortable environment of the womb, there was an incredible, actually close to unbearable experience of pain and of suffering, of coming out of the womb. As I came out, there was this unbearable feeling of coldness, this unbearable feeling of separation, and this enormous desire to be enclosed, to be held. And as I know, it was the most, as I know it, it was the most painful experience I've ever had. At that time and even now, I can't, I don't know of anything so painful personally at this point. After the experience finished, I ran down the stairs to write a note to my teacher to tell him that I needed to talk to him immediately because I could hardly stand it. I could hardly bear the feelings that was so painful. And I came down the stairs and I walked into the large dining room area. It was about 15 minutes before the Dharma talk and everyone, there were a bunch of people in there doing walking meditation in the dining room. And I knew they were practicing metta. They were walking back and forth and I knew they were saying, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I take care of myself joyfully, may I be free from danger, may I live with ease. Over, I knew they were saying these things over and over and over again. And I just stood there and looked at them. And this flash of understanding came up as I was standing there in my misery that every single one of them in some way had experienced, even if they didn't remember it, had experienced birth and possibly many of them in the similar way that I had. And that what they were doing was just perfect. They were healing themselves by doing this practice. 
And in that moment of knowing that, of seeing them, tears came to my eyes, not of uh, sadness or fear, but of appreciation and feeling of connection and not feeling separate anymore and feeling one with these people who were practicing, that this was what we needed to do. It was um, joyful, actually. And so I didn't write the note to my teacher. I didn't need to. They, the Sangha had uh, told me just what I needed to hear. So we're all doing just what we need to do here. It's wonderful. This is a very tiny little poem by a, an Australian cartoonist and poet named Michael Lunig. Love is born with a dark and troubled face when hope is dead and in the most unlikely place. Love is born. Love is always born. Real loving and deep compassion, both in the personal sense and in the universal sense, allows, honors, respects, appreciates separateness and the acting out of this conditioned state starts to slip away. We're waking up in our heart. We're waking up into the heart of loving-kindness. We're waking up into the heart of compassion. As we bring more metta, more loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity into our life, we begin to know that all beings are essentially and deeply the same, experiencing joy in similar ways, We're waking up in our heart. We're waking up in the heart of loving-kindness, the heart of compassion. As we bring more metta and compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity into our life, we begin to know that all beings are essentially the same, essentially and deeply the same, experiencing joy in similar ways, experiencing suffering in similar ways, And so we begin to honor all beings, all of our cries, all of our laughs. We honor all of those who suffer, all of those who are joyful. And we know that we're neither separate nor superior to anyone, not to any living being. I'd like to end with a little bit of Krishnamurti's meditation journal. Meditation is the movement of love It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. It's as though the mind enters into itself, beginning at the surface and penetrating ever more deeply until depth and height have lost their meaning and every form of measurement ceases. In this state, there is complete peace. Not contentment which has come through gratification, but a peace that has order, beauty, and intensity. It can all be destroyed as you destroy a flower, and yet because of its very vulnerability, it's indestructible.
Let's sit together for a moment. A short poem that was written by Raymond Carver just shortly before he died called Late Fragment. And did you get what you wanted in this life? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved. To call myself beloved in this life.